What an amazing insight into monotony. We think, man, do it again, the same old thing. And he says, do you realize that's an attitude that has been brought on because of sin? We've grown old. I think of my, my children who always say to me, do it again, do it again. And I'm like, come on, again? And I do it again. They're fascinated. God does it again for eternity. It's something he never grows up. What's happened? Sin has affected us. And so when it comes to faithfulness, this is something we have to battle. When it comes to being a steward, we have to battle through the monotony of continuance. Just keep on doing what God has called us to do and being obedient to that. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Corinthians chapter 4 and we're going to cover the first like four four or five verses of that of that chapter tonight all right title of our message tonight is under the microscope under the microscope and uh, let's read just the first verse and then we'll pray it says let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God moreover is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful uh, for a time where we can come together, sing to you, and Lord, we're so thankful on this side of the cross that your presence is not only living inside of us, but is all around us. And Lord, we're just so thankful that we have access into your throne room, and and Lord, that we have access to the grace of God. And um, So tonight, Lord, we pray that we would just know... um, by the ministry of the body, Lord, just what it is to, to live in your grace, to be loved by you, and uh, God, that you would teach us and minister to us through your word as you've been so faithful to you. And we're, we're very thankful, God, for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us now by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the idea of this section that we'll cover tonight, and we're, again, we're just going to cover the first five verses, um, and that is Paul is placing himself under the microscope. Um, how many of you ever looked at something under a microscope and you're like, I wish I had never seen what was under the microscope? Have you ever seen like a dust mite up close or um, a spider up close? And you're like, this is horrifying. I wish I had never known these things. I wish I could undo the things that I've seen and known. Um, but that's kind of what, that's not what Paul's doing. But anyway, he's putting himself under a microscope, meaning he wants them to inspect his life. Um, but it's not what we think. He's going to use this word judge multiple times, but this is not Paul raising his fist in anger, demanding them to stop judging him, but in fact, inviting them to do so. Uh, But he's inviting them to examine his life. And Paul tells them there are certain things that as a minister, as a servant of the Lord, there are some things that they should find. And there are certain undeniable qualities that they should find. And so he's inviting them to like take a closer look. And here's what you should find. That first, uh, first verse where it says, let a man so consider. That word consider is this word to examine or to scrutinize. And as you do, you should come to a conclusion. As you inspect something, it's leading you to a conclusion. But there are two specific things that you should see, he says. First of all, you'll see a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And these two words are closely related to each other. It's not like Paul's saying that, you know, I'm a servant of Christ. And over here, 
Got my stewardship going over here. He's saying stewardship and servanthood are, are, are closely related. They're, they're closely knit together. Hello. And so it's like peanut butter and jelly. Not that good without the other. It's manageable, but not that great. Put them together, it's fantastic. It's like mac and cheese and bacon and breadcrumbs. I mean, they're all closely related. One without the other, um, it's manageable, but yet these two go, uh, coincide. The New Testament is written in Greek, if you didn't know, and there are several Greek words which translate into English the word servant. And some of those words are diakonos, which we, look, we learned a few weeks ago. It's the word where we get deacon. Uh, one of the first deacons that we really learn about is in the book of Acts where they were having a problem with the widows in the town and they, their needs weren't being met and the apostles were just having a hard time being able to manage all of the ministry and so they elected diaconus. They, they elected deacons to wait tables. So this idea of diaconus is someone who is a waiter or a waitress. Those of you that are working in the industry right now and you have to wear a mask, you are a diaconus. You are a waiter or waitress. Acts 7 is where we find that, that story. And Stephen, we know, was the first martyr um, for the Lord. The second word is the word doulos. It's, it's um, a stronger word, which means slave. Someone who has lost their rights and the will of themselves to another. Much like when Paul was chained to a centurion soldier, right? Wherever the, the soldier went, that's where Paul went. He had no will of his own. Wherever he was led by this soldier, that's where Paul went. And that's the idea. Someone who is chained to another, their rights and their um, will has been taken from them. There's also, which is the third one, is this word officer. Another word for servant is the word officer in the Greek, meaning someone who is under authority. And you cannot, I don't know if you know this, but you cannot impersonate an officer. It's kind of illegal. Um, you can't like dress up and make yourself a little badge. All the way Halloween, it's okay. You can't like paint your car the color and put lights on it. And you're like arresting people. You have a cop car. Yeah, that's right. You have a cop car. Well, I guess you can impersonate an officer, but it's kind of illegal. Like you can't do that. Um, <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. Um, but the idea is that you cannot impersonate an officer of authority. It's authority is given to you. That you're coming under the authority of another. And we have this um, New Testament example of this in Matthew chapter 8. There's a, a centurion servant or a centurion soldier who comes to the Lord and tells him that my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You're like, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? This idea of authority or officer is that you understand authority not because you've experienced it, but because you are under it. And the centurion soldier says, I understand the authority that you have, just like I have authority to tell my soldier to go and do this, and he will do it. And they had very strict rules when it came to Roman law, that if you didn't do it, you would be killed. I mean, it was pretty quick. Like, if you want to get out of the service, that's how you did it. Just disobey, and they'll kill you for it. So, um, kind of strict. But anyway, 
This is the idea, officer, someone who has come under the authority of another. He's not saying that he understands because of experience, but he understands because he understands authority. And Paul is saying, I don't just have authority, but I'm under the authority of God. It's not just something that he's had or been given, it's that he comes under the authority of the Lord. It's this idea of officer. But the last one, which I find fascinating, is this idea of a galley slave. Uh, someone who would be put under a ship and given an oar, and he would row. Back then, the, they didn't have engines. They were powered by men, by slaves. And so they would row. And under, have you ever seen Ben-Hur? Remember that scene where he's under the ship, and he's like all ripped, and like, I'm rowing. And you're like, that's it. I'm going to start rowing. That's how I'm going to get my cardio in and get all buff. But you notice there's a drum that's beating right? If they wanted him to go faster, they would beat the drum faster. Paul says, liken us to that, that we're under this ship and we're rowing to the cadence of our master, who is Jesus. And no matter what he says, that's what we're going to do. We have no face. We have no name. It's not about us. It's about getting people to a destination. So consider us to be that kind of servant. And, and Paul was saying here, remember the, the issue that they had. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. He says, we're slaves. We have no face. We have no name. Our rights have been given up to the Lord. It's about Jesus. It's about him. It's not about whether you come under my authority. It's are you under the authority of Jesus Christ? I myself, he says, am under authority, under the authority of God. And so this is what we should find in the heart of a person who claims to know Christ is a heart of servanthood. Um, we, we talked about it a few weeks ago. The, the way in which the kingdom of God is brought into this world is by you serving those who do not know Jesus. The method of the kingdom is servanthood. That's how we bring the kingdom into the situation is by serving others. But the second one is this word steward. It's made up of two compound Greek words. It's the word oikos, how many of you like oikos yogurt, right? On the nosy. It's, it's the, it means home. So you're eating house yogurt. But it's the other part of that word is namas or law. Literally, this word means house law. House law. And it's given charge. When someone is a steward, they're given charge over the house. You're, you're given charge over someone else's possessions, over everything they own, although you do not own any of it. You are responsible for all of it. One of the greatest examples of this is found in the Old Testament in the person of Joseph. Remember Joseph? He was thrown into a pit by his brothers and was sold into slavery. Um, and as he was sold, he was sold to a wealthy landowner who had an estate, and this man wanted to, uh, to grow that estate. And so Joseph was sold to him. And as he watched his life, he noticed giftings and different things in Joseph's life that he was better than just washing the ponies and doing whatever. And so he gives him authority. He's over the entire household of Potiphar. And you know, his wife came after him. And if you guys don't know the story, read the book of Genesis chapter 40. It's in there somewhere. The life of, the life of Joseph. It's a fascinating life. I don't remember where it is. But it's in the, it's in the end there. Um, so he gets sold into slavery. Potiphar's wife wrongfully accuses him. He gets thrown into prison. He then becomes second in command over the whole prison. He becomes in charge of the prison. 
And, and through a different circumstances, he meets the king of the entire empire and then becomes second in command over all of the empire. God used his life in, a, in a, an amazing way to save the nation of Israel. However, we have this example of what it is to be a steward. When he was there in Potiphar's house, he was in charge of everything, but he owned nothing. He was responsible for the care of everything, but it was not his belongings. In the prison itself, he was in charge of the prison, but he himself was a prisoner. He was in charge of the daily things here and there. In, in the kingdom, when he rises to second in command over the entire nation, I mean, he has all the wealth, everything at his disposal, but none of it belongs to him, but he was responsible for all of it. So the idea is that a steward is responsible to take care of what's been entrusted to him, although he does not own any of it. He was in charge, but was not an owner. It's fascinating to me if you, you look at those things. He was a slave, he was a prisoner, and he became an heir of the king. And if you look at the life of the Christian, we're a slave of sin at one point. Christ sets us free and we become a slave by choice. It's called a bond slave or a bond servant. We become under the, the rule of a new master, not our flesh, but under Jesus Christ. He is our master. Um, we become, we're, we're set free from prison, from our own sins. The Bible tells us that we are, our chains fall off. I mean, we've been set free from the power of sin and from the bondage that enslaves us. And, and Paul says, I am, my chains are in Christ. I'm a prisoner by choice. In the book of Philippians. Romans tells us that we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. So we become slaves, prisoners of Christ, and joint heirs with Christ, just like Joseph. The fascinating thing, he was always under the rule of a master or a king. We too are under the rule of a master and a king that is Jesus Christ. And so we are stewarding what? What are we stewarding? The mysteries of God. Now, when we talk about mystery, we talked about it a few weeks ago. What is a mystery in, in the scriptures? This is not something that could not be found out, but it's something that you either know or you don't know, but you would not know it unless it's been revealed to you. So that is the idea. Paul's saying this mystery and how God was going to redeem his people, we did not know how it was going to take place, but it has been unveiled, revealed to us. We now know and steward the mysteries of God. This is something that we now know and give to others. It's not a mystery that can't be found out. It is something that now has been revealed and we give to others. Let's be honest. When something is yours, you treat it differently than something that belongs to someone else, don't you? Unless it's a rental car and you treat it like the dog that it is, right? That Ford Geo is getting some airtime, you know? It's like, let's see what we can do in this rental car. Yeah? Some of you aren't 25 yet, so you can't rent a car. But, but when you do, I mean, that thing, I don't care. We are donuts air. But anyway, something that's under your care that someone lends to you, you understand that this isn't yours to give away or sell, right? Someone's like, hey man, you can borrow my surfboard. And you're like, thanks. It'd be really jacked up for you to go put it on offer up and sell it to the highest bidder and be like, ah, I sold it. It's not yours. It's mine. 
The idea that whatever, if it's yours, you can treat it however you want. But as a steward of something, you're to treat it as the owner would treat it, right? So let's say you babysat my kids. And by the way, you can if you want to. Give me your phone number. <laughs> They're very sweet. Um, but let's say you, you babysat my kids for me. And I'm like, here they are. These are my, this is the most important thing to me in the world. And I'm letting you take care of them for me, right? As I leave the house. And I'm like, goodbye. And slowly back out in a creepy, weird way. Like, this is the most important thing and the most precious possession that I own. You are now stewarding those children for me. So you're to treat them as if I was in the room. You're to take care of them as though I was there with you. The idea when Paul says that we're to steward something for the Lord, we're to treat it as though God himself is there with us. And so... Paul is saying that we've been given the mysteries of the plan of God. We're to treat it as though God would treat it and care for it himself. But what are the qualities of a steward? Look what he says later in the verse. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But what are the qualities? He says, first of all, there must be faithfulness. Faithfulness. The word require can also be translated look or see. In the Greek. So he's saying what God is looking for in a steward or a servant, in someone who wants to follow him or to serve him in ministry, what is God looking for? He's looking for faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness has two kind of aspects to it. Faithfulness carries the idea of two things dependability, someone who is dependable, who will do what they're asked to do, right? Dependable people are amazing people. That if you ask them to show up, they show up. How have you enjoy that? They're like, hey, I'm going to meet you at this time at this place. And you're like, awesome. And they're there. And you're like, that is so wonderful. If you're one of those people, God bless you. If you're not one of those people, perhaps God is moving upon your heart to be one of those people. Use your calendar in your phone. Set alarms. Set alerts. Be on time. God will bless it. Anyway, someone who's dependable, who shows up, who serves, who's faithful. That is something that God is looking for. One of the things that we have to battle, someone said today, and I loved it, it is the monotony of continuance. The monotony of continuance. There's always a lot of excitement when something first starts, isn't there? It's easy when something's first going, right? We got a puppy like two years ago. First week, I'm up at five, taking that dog out, taking, you know, puppy, just doing the puppy thing doing all the right things, feeding, and at first you're like, this is so great. He falls asleep in my lap, and he just, we're so, this is so wonderful. Week two, week three comes around, and you're like, I'm tired of stepping and stuff, you know? I'm kind of over that phase. It was exciting at first, but the monotony of continuance is something that, sorry if that's disgusting, but, but the, the monotony of life, sometimes we get to a point where we're like, I just don't want to do this anymore. It's not exciting anymore. Really, just reading your Bible, that's how you walk with Jesus? Isn't there something more exciting? Is there something different? Isn't there a way? Is there something new? The Bible tells us that in the last days, men will heap up for themselves teachers for themselves that will tickle their ears, that make them excited. Why? Because there's monotony in life sometimes. The monotony of continuance. 
What do we need to continue through monotony? We need dependability and faithfulness. G.K. Chesterton, he said this. It's a little lengthy. Stay with me. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. What an amazing insight into monotony. We think, man, do it again, the same old thing. And he says, do you realize that's an attitude that has been brought on because of sin? We've grown old. I think of my, my children who always say to me, do it again, do it again. And I'm like, come on. Again? And they're like, do it again. They're fascinated. God does it again for eternity. It's something he never grows up. What's happened? Sin has affected us. And so when it comes to faithfulness, this is something we have to battle. When it comes to being a steward, we have to battle through the monotony of continuance. Just keep on doing what God has called us to do and being obedient to that. Faithfulness carries with it, the other side of it, is the element of something being true. Being true. A faithful messenger must be a true messenger. A messenger must be true to the message. We must not cave to the culture and make the gospel palatable. We have to stay true to the message. Have you ever played that game telephone when you kind of you whisper a phrase and it goes around and, and all of that and you think like... Um, there's always that one person in the group who just ruins the whole thing and changes the message on purpose, even though it was clearly said, and you're like, come on, that's not the point of the game. You ruined it. But that is the, the necessity of keeping the message the same. To be a true messenger, we must keep the message true. Keeping the gospel what it is. And there is a, a major, we're in a pressure cooker as the church, to cave to what the culture tells us what we're to be. There's a pressure upon same-sex marriage. There's a pressure upon keeping God out of everything and, every, and anyone. There's a pressure on us, on, on just about everything that we stand for as Christians, there is a pressure against it saying, cave to the culture. That what you're saying isn't going to work. It's not palatable. You need to make it to a way that people can receive it and they feel comfortable and they feel accepted. Jesus, loving, gracious, never was concerned about whether or not someone was comfortable. He was worried whether or not they were saved or not. Do you realize that the devil loves to make people comfortable? Not that he works at Love Sack and that's like the devil's store. And he's like, come and sit on these beanbags. Just stay comfortable or whatever. But he loves to make us comfortable in our own faith. The more that you are comfortable and don't get out of that and start sharing the gospel with people, the devil's fine. Your life's cush. And he's okay with that. As long as you don't take anyone else to heaven with you, fine. Just sit and do nothing. 
And he's satisfied with that. He's going to mess with you. He's going to try and get you off trail, obviously. But the minute that you start stepping out of your comfort zone, has ever, anyone ever done this? You don't have to raise your hand. Things start getting really hard, don't they? You may be coming to a Thursday night young adults group. You're like, oh my gosh, this is so I don't want to go. Don't tell me if you don't want to go. But my mom made me or whatever. Like, I don't want it. It's so difficult. Everyone always tells me, man, it was so difficult to get here. And I'm like, okay. I feel good. I feel good about me. Um, but it was so hard. It was so difficult. Man, it was such a pressure. Ah, but I'm so glad I'm here. Or whatever. Anytime that you start to push forward in your walk with Jesus, you know the devil's going to push back. Definitely. But it is so worth it, isn't it? It's so worth it to press into Jesus. He's going to do, the devil's going to do everything he can to keep you comfortable. And as long as you don't grow and you just stay as you are, that's fine. But as you move forward in your walk with Jesus, you're bound to have some kind of pushback from that. What God is looking for in his servant and stewards of the mysteries of God is faithfulness, dependability, and again, faithfulness. Paul moves on from talking about um, just what is required, but he moves into the three different courtrooms that he's going to stand in front of. Right? He's talking about judgments and judgments that are coming. He says in verse 3, But with me it is, very small, it is a very small thing that you should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Shout out to Tupac right there. Therefore, judge nothing before the time till the Lord comes who will both bring into light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of hearts Then each one's praise will come from the Lord. So he describes three different courtrooms. The first one is the judgment of others. The second is the, the scrutiny of self-examination. And the last one is the judgment of the Lord. The judgment of others. The Bible has a lot to say about judging others, doesn't it? Right? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. How many of you know that verse memorized, right? We know that verse. Don't judge me, man, or whatever. Judge not lest you be judged. For with that judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own, Jesus says. Okay, so in one word, what is Jesus saying? When it comes to judgment, one word, don't. Very good, don't, right? Don't judge. John chapter seven, verse 24, look at this one. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In one word, what is Jesus saying? Do. So you have a don't and you have a do. Is this the great contradiction that every skeptic has been looking for? From the history of time? See, the, I knew it. The Bible is full of contradictions. One minute Jesus saying, don't judge. And the next he's saying, judge. Found it. Homeschool high five. Good for me. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, however, is the carnal Christian's favorite verse, isn't it? Every, every person who's ever like quoted this verse, it's, it's used in a way that trumps every other Bible verse in the Bible. So if you're like coming and someone's like, hey man, what you're doing is wrong. And they're like, hey, don't judge me. And they're like, but this verse says, thou shalt not. And they're like, hey, this one says, I'm under the new covenant. All right? 
judge not and suddenly become some kind of theologian in order to promote their cause. And they're like able to wiggle through scripture in order to kind of justify what they're doing. Anyone who tells them that they're wrong, uh, that they're wrong is judgmental and is in sin. And this is the world we live in, isn't it? Anytime that you tell people that what they're doing is wrong, it's like, who are you to tell me what's wrong? And what the world is trying to do is to eliminate anything that would be called wrong. It's called the last days. That good would become evil and evil would become good. It's the last days that we're living in. It's this pressure and movement towards there is no such thing as wrong. What's right for you is what's right for you. And you, who are you to judge another person? So what is Jesus saying when he says, do not judge, and in another instance saying, judge? When Jesus says this, it does not stand by itself. It's not a proverb that is just a true statement that stands alone. Like we were to throw a proverb up here, and it's just a true statement, right? One of my favorite ones is, if you find honey, don't eat too much or you will vomit. It's a great true statement. Like some of you are like, sugar, and you're like eating too much, and you throw up. It's in the Bible, okay? So there's that verse, and it's just a true statement as is. But this statement that Jesus makes in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, is a true statement that does not stand alone. This verse only is only true in light of the context that it's in. So you cannot separate what Jesus is saying around the text that, that encompasses this verse. And here's what Jesus is condemning in judging. He says, judging others without judging yourself first is wrong. Do not judge, he says. Right? He says, Do you remove the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck out of another. It says, do not judge unless you yourself had judged yourself. Meaning, you could be in the same situation that they're in had it not been for the grace of God. So that's wrong. But the second thing that he's condemning is using your own standard of judgment. Using your own standard of judgment. If you look at the rest of, of uh, John's gospel, John 24, when he says, judge with righteous judgment. Are any of us righteous? In and of ourselves. No. Where does righteous judgment come from? It comes from God's word. So when someone is doing something or misbehaving in a way that is against the word of God, and we come and tell them, hey, scripture tells us clearly that you should not be doing this. How can we help? What can we do? How can we draw us back to Jesus? What can we, you know, what kind of thing can the church help you do? Or how can we disciple? What book can we go through? We want to help you. That's not judging. Judging actually is when you know that what someone is doing is wrong and you tell them that it's okay. You violate Matthew chapter 7 because you have become the judge over God's word. So when someone tells you that what you're doing is wrong but it's okay, that's when you tell them, hey, don't judge me, man. Don't judge me. We, when someone comes to you with with grace and with truth and says, listen, I want you to know this because this is what God's word says. And I love you and I care for you. They're not judging you. They are helping you. They're helping you. I don't know if you know this, and I've recently learned this at the ripe old age of 34, that I have blind spots in my character. 
Things that I can't see in and of myself that my wife can truly see. She has this great ability to see it because she's with me all the time. So she has like a, a huge big screen view of my character. And so we have blind spots in our character that can only be seen sometimes by an outside source. Um, this is awesome. I love having a bunch of stuff here on Thursday nights all at the same time. It's a good call. It's a good call. Super fun. Does anyone else have ADD, like major? I do. I have it really bad. And um, it's adult onset ADD. I didn't have it until I turned 30. And now I'm like, <laughs> I can't pay attention. I can barely read. Anyway, so like, this is fun. The second court, let's move on. The second court. Verse 3, look what he says. Verse 3, but with me it is very, a very small thing that I should be judged by you, which sounds kind of jerky, right? Like, it doesn't matter if you judge me. I don't really care. Awesome. Um, in fact, I do not even judge myself. There is the scrutiny of self-examination. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's admitting to yourself that there are blind spots in your character and asking God to show them to you. There's, there's a real value in, evalu in evaluating your own heart. The time goes by, I don't know about you, but time is moving quickly. And if I don't stop and just take, take inventory of what's really going on in my heart, you can have cracks all in your soul that you don't even know about until like tragedy comes or something hits and you're like, man, I'm jacked up on the inside. I'm messed up. Lord, I, I don't even know. And so it's, it's good for us to take inventory and examine, Lord, is there any wickedness in me? Is there a root of bitterness in me? Is there some kind of slippery way or foothold that the devil has in my life that I'm just not seeing? Search me. Reveal it to me, he says. But self-examination is only effective in light of the cross. It only works if we look through the lens of of the cross itself. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. 28. It says, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Self-examination is only valuable when it's done in light of what Jesus has done for us. Because the cross convinces us to deny the works of sin and to cling to the finished work of Christ in our life. A lot of times when we mess up, We'll, we'll abuse the grace of God or we'll refuse the grace of God. And we'll try and fix it and make ourselves better in order to make ourselves acceptable to the Lord. And God's saying, just come as you are. Or you're like, I can't go to church, man. I messed up so much this week. I got to go like figure it out or I can't sing. I can't worship. I'm too messed up. And Jesus is saying, you need to look at yourself through the lens of the cross. Because that tells you there's grace for you today. Your gra the grace of God has forgiven you of all sin. It's washed it all away. And it's also the motivating factor as to why to not continue to do the things that I've been doing. So the cross convinces us to deny the works of sin and to cling to the finished work of Christ in our life. The third one is the judgment of the Lord. There's two different people and two different judgments. Okay, The first one is the unsaved. The person who says... I'm going to stand before God on my own two feet and my own works. To deny Jesus 
is to deny the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's to say that when I stand before God, because every person will stand to give account before the living and powerful and true and righteous God, and when we do, there's a book that will be opened. And it's the book of deeds. It's the book of works. It's everything that you've ever done. And if you refuse Christ, when that book is opened, it's going to begin to deduct from you righteousness. One, one slip, one sin is enough to condemn us all. And so when you stand before God in your own righteousness, you're saying, I don't need Jesus. I'm good as I am. I can stand before the Lord. I don't need his salvation that he offers. And you stand there with a laundry list of things that you've gone against God. The Lord tells us that even every idle word that has been said, the little words that we say under our breath, God has recorded in his book. Nothing escapes his sight. Nothing escapes his, I mean, it's incredible what the Bible says. Now, there's the other side of it, right? You're going to stand to give an account for what you've done. It's like gymnastics. You ever, I don't know, if you ever <laughs> watched gymnastics, which I'm sure you've all, we were supposed to have the Olympics this year. Um, yeah, I want to down her. Um, but if you've ever watched the floor exercise, right, they start with a perfect score. And then she makes that one little, like, she's going backwards to get ready to go and steps on the line or steps out of the box or whatever. And it's like, oh, that's going to be a deduction, right? That's a deduction. That's a deduction. And they begin to add up all the deductions, and that's how you get your score, right? Surfing's different. Surfing is holy. It's from God. Because when you start, you start with zero, right? You start with zero, as you paddle, you start with zero, and as you stand to your feet, what happens? You get a point. As you make your bottom turn, you get another point. As you come up to the lip, and you graciously destroy the lip with the tail of your board, causing spray to go everywhere in this glorious rooster tail shape, you get a point. As you then pump down the line into the air section, you pull the three, whatever. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. You get points as you go along. One of those judgment seats, when you stand before God, God will begin to deduct. Standing in your own righteousness. If you're on the other side of it, if you're saved, you stand in the righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, the book that would carry all of your deeds has been wiped clean. So when they pull it up and they're like Andrew Newman and they're bringing in the truckloads of books of all the stupid things that I've done, all of them are wiped clean. There's nothing in them. They're canceled out. They're blotted out because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And what God begins to do is then look at my life since accepting Christ and begin to reward for what we've done in his name. There's two seats. There's two judgments. There's two people. Which one do you want to be? I want to be the one that gets rewards. And that's what he's saying. When I stand before God, I'm going to have to give an account for what I've done with the life that he's given me. And I want to be rewarded. I want to be blessed. But I want God to be blessed by the life that I've lived. And so Paul says, I don't care if you judge me. I don't even judge myself because I know that I'm going to stand before a holy God who I'm going to give account to. And I love that he invites them here to look at his own life and say, what do you see? It's such a good thing. Like the psalmist said, Lord, search me. Is there wickedness in me? 
is there some kind of bent towards evil that I'm just not seeing? Is there a reason that I keep falling into this sin and I don't understand why it's becoming so easy? Or maybe I do and I'm just not willing to give it up. Search me, oh God, reveal my heart to me. It's wise. It's a wise thing. May we be good stewards and faithful to what God has called us to do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I, I pray, God, as we... Um, as we've learned tonight, God, that you, you desire faithfulness. We're so thankful in your word that you tell us when we get to heaven, you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to hear those words. Not well done, good and popular servant or well done, good and good looking servant. You say, good. thank you, faithful. Welcome, faithful servant. Lord, and what you desire is faithfulness. God, if any of us are stuck in this monotony of life and we think, man, I don't know if I can keep doing what I'm doing, but I know that I'm called to do it. Lord, we pray that there would be a resolve to be a steward of what you've given to us and to be faithful to what you've called us to. We love you, Lord. We thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Heart in your soul.